Hello, everyone. Welcome back for a brand new episode of Collider Ladies Night. I'm very excited about this check because you all should be watching Why the Last Man on FX on Hulu right now and checking out the incredible work from Olivia Thurlby. Hello. So nice to meet you and big congratulations on this show. Thank you so much, Perry. I'm so happy to be here. All right. So I didn't warn you about this, but the first thing we do on Ladies' Night is we use the dice tower behind me. I've got a list of eight random questions here. You get three rolls on the dice tower, and then those are the three questions that we start with, at least. All right. Let's let's roll these dice. I got your first roll here. Okay. Going with a two. Two is a new one. This is called Game Show. If you could be on the game show of your choice, what would you pick and why? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is a game show that doesn't even exist, which is like a game show of Yahtzee, because suddenly with these dice, I'm feeling like I'm playing Yahtzee. And I just played Yahtzee for the very first time, and I had unbelievable beginner's luck. Um, I sort of cleaned up. So I feel already like I'm doing really, really well in this imaginary Yahtzee game show. Snake Eyes. You should pitch that around. Make it happen. I bet you someone out there would pick up a Yahtzee game show. Why not? Maybe with you as the host. After I get on Wheel of Fortune and get a little experience, then I'll be prepared to host my own Yahtzee game show. (laughs) We are up to roll number two now. Got a three back there. Three is called downtime. What is your favorite way to pass the time between filming scenes on set? Oh, goodness. That is a good question. And there's no cut and dry answer because it depends on which two scenes are you shooting? Like, did you just finish the hard one and now later you don't have any lines or is it the other way around? It's all a head game. So it completely depends on what's up next and how much of a headspace I have to be in for it. But if the stakes are low, Probably eating. I probably want to eat something, snack just as much as I possibly can. <laughs> I'm adding a follow-up to this. Do you have a, an onset, you know, snacking vice, the thing that you can't refuse while you're working? All, all onset snacking is a vice, first of all. <laughs> That's fair. Second of all, oh, I think I, again, I go through different phases, um, but there's this... Well, also, we don't have um, like a crafty table. Now during COVID, you can't just walk up to a huge table of food and grab something, which is sort of a relief. Um, But uh, I'm pretty, I'm pretty powerless to be able to avoid like, like a caffeinated beverage. Like if someone's like, hey, do you want a coffee? Even if I don't. I'll be like, yeah, that's not a snack. I'm not I'm not trying to say that I think drinking liquids is the same as snacking, but if there's one thing that I feel like I, I have a real vice about on set, I think it's I think it's caffeine. We ask this would you rather question all the time. Would you rather work on a set with no food or no caffeine? And my my pick is always no food because I can't function without caffeine and I get judged all the time for it. Yeah, I uh I actually think I'd probably agree with you, though. I'll, I can bring my own food, but I would prefer someone else provide the caffeine. I like that way of approaching it. All right, we've got roll number three here. 
Number seven is more TV. If you could guest star on the TV show of your choice, what would you pick and why? I would like to guest star on Big Mouth. I would love to voice one of those characters. And why? Because that show uh, has made me laugh alone deeper and harder than I've laughed alone in a long time. <laughs> Solid pick and a very good reason right there. All right, we have hit the the main chunk of the interview. Let's get into your filmography and your journey throughout this crazy industry. I always like starting at the very, very beginning. What is the movie, the show, the performance, personal experience, you name it, that first made you say, I have to be an actor? Um, I think when I was about six or seven years old, um, my mom took me to see a performance of the musical Showboat. And I remember looking up at the people on stage and thinking, I could do that. The irony, of course, is that I can't sing or dance. Um, but I had like one third of the equation down. Um, and yeah, that, that was the first memory of, of me looking at, looking at what was happening and, and knowing that uh, I wanted to do that. Okay, so taking a step ahead now, I always love talking about whether or not someone decides to study their craft in school versus just getting out there and getting experience. And listen, I don't know how accurate Wikipedia is, but based on my read of your Wikipedia page, it seems like you did study, but maybe not in a one school, one setting type of program. So why was that the best path for you in terms of studying your craft? Well, the most of the studying of my craft that I did uh, actually happened while I was still in school, while I was in high school, because um, I sort of got a break and started working in the film industry when I was 18, which is right at the time that I was applying to drama conservatory. And um, so my education in acting abruptly went from the classroom to the set, which was um, a wonderful way to get educated about it. Um, so when I was growing up, um, all throughout my, my childhood and my adolescence and my teenage years, I loved acting and I wanted to do it as much as I possibly could and and learn as much as I possibly could about it. So that was where I kind of focused all my time and all of my extracurricular time. So most of the training, if you read my Wikipedia page, it actually, almost all of it happened before the age of 18. Oh, wow. So how do you get from that training to making your very first feature film role in a Paul Greengrass movie. What What is happening between those two periods of time? Is it kind of the audition grind and then this one hit? Actually, my first film that I, that I did, uh, it was a film called The Secret, um, which uh, I, I don't think it ever got released in this country, in the United States, but... Um, it was, that was like my big break. I got that role um, when I was a senior in high school. I was 18 years old and um, I withdrew my applications to the various drama schools that I was trying to get into because I wanted to take the opportunity and go shoot that job. 
Um, and so that was sort of the beginning. Before that, I had mostly been auditioning for commercials. I hadn't done any or many of them. I think I had done maybe one or two. Um, and um, so, yeah, so that was just kind of one of those things that came out of nowhere. And I remember at the time I was really bummed because I had not gotten into Juilliard, which was my dream. <laughs> and I was really down and depressed and sort of feeling bad about myself. Um, and then this came along and it was a wild ride. And then being able to go uh, shoot that film, um, which was sort of like a crash course in doing it because it was actually the lead role in a feature film. So I was very green, uh, but very dedicated and um, had a great group of people around me who were really loving and, and supported me through it um, and taught me a lot. And um, through doing that job, I got some managers um and then the like auditions just started rolling in um and i and i continued to get really lucky after that i did um i did margaret um which is a kenneth lonergan film um i had a small part in that and um i did a i think i did a, so an arc on a tv show um and then, um, and then I think Snow Angels came along, which was a really big deal for me. I was a huge fan of David Gordon Green. And that remains to this day one of my favorite films that I've ever been a part of. Um, and then I think United 93 came after that. So when you look online, like the chronology of when things get released is obviously very different than when they get filmed. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, that's a very long winded way of answering your very simple question, um, which was just the answer is sort of um, I started with a bang and that momentum kept me going for a couple of years. Not a simple answer because it's not a simple thing. I feel like like just like you even said, it's so easy to just, you know, go on IMDb, scroll through someone's credits and make certain assumptions about how they got to where they're going. But there, there's a lot going on behind the scenes there. Yeah, it was a, definitely a few years, teenage years, of course. Let us jump ahead to Juno right now. It is hands down one of my absolute favorites. So at that point, you had had a good deal of experience, but Diablo Cody dialogue is just, it's so unique and so specific. And from my limited perspective, it kind of feels like working with dialogue like that and make it, making it work is so dependent on the actor just nailing the timing and the intonation. So what was it like tackling that kind of dialogue and did you find it challenging? Diablo's writing is definitely one of a kind. And I think that's part of what made the script this sort of wild magnet for all of these people who just read it and said, what is this? This is incredible. I've never read anything like it. And what I remember at the time, and this was like a really long time ago at this point, bear in mind, but that it was so exciting to read something that was in a voice that was unlike anything else. And I remember 
just taking to it. I think the biggest part about doing that kind of dialogue is not to overthink it because there's so much going on on the page. There's so many words. It's so expressive. Um, it's so uh, colorful and dynamic. The idea is just not to do a lot. And I don't think I necessarily succeeded in that. Again, I'm going to like go back to the being really, really young thing. Um, but uh, I remember just having fun. I think that was what it was all about. Was the words were so fun. So I just had had as much fun with it as was already on the page. When you think about yourself not having totally succeeded with it, I'm so curious what you immediately call to mind because I rewatched that movie and your work and many aspects of it just still stand out as as like top tier work to this day. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Um, I haven't seen Juno since it came out in 2008. Um, was it 2008? I think you might be right. Yeah, probably. Uh, so to be honest, I actually am not probably a good authority on whatever I did or didn't do because <laughs> I don't remember. Um, but I remember really loving the movie at the time. I remember being extremely proud of it at the time. Probably what you're picking up on is um, my own self-deprecating tendencies to doubt that it was ever anything good. Um, or even that maybe it, it, none of it like, stands the test of time. Um, but thank you for saying that it does. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm so good at conveying those types of things to other people. But when it comes to myself, I'll go and look at an interview that I did in 2008. I'm like, that is garbage. Can it like vanish from the internet and never be seen again? Yeah, I know the feeling. All right. We need to talk about dread. So with that one, I feel like we do often hear about the challenges of crafting a performance when one's own face is covered like Carl Urban in that movie. But what about from your perspective, looking at him as a scene partner, did not having access to that kind of expression pose a bigger challenge for you? Or, you know, is it just a matter of, yeah, that's what the character is. So it worked well. I think that it worked because I think that the impenetrable quality of that persona is so relevant to uh, what my character was playing off of. So Anderson is uh, an incredibly sensitive person who operates, orients herself in the world by being able to relate intimately to people. And so being, um, you know, with this person who is unreadable um, and the ways in which that would throw her off her game, uh, I think were actually relevant to the story that we were telling. Because I think he's an intimidating figure and that's sort of the point. So all the more reason why um, it would uh, unsettle her that she couldn't, you know, get in his head quite as much, I guess. 
I have a feeling you've heard a lot about this at this point, but I do feel like we're going to be talking about sequel potential for a very long time here. But whenever that conversation comes up, I always do wonder, like, is is there more story for her at this point? So basically, if we were to get a sequel and Anderson was involved do you think she would wind up committing to being a judge at all? Because of course she passes the, uh, the test at the end, but when she handed over that badge, is it handing over any interest whatsoever in being a judge or is it simply the assumption that she failed because of X, Y, Z? It's a good question. I mean, first of all, let me just say I was always the number one advocate of getting a sequel for dread. I, love that movie and I love that character and uh if there is still talk of there being a sequel 10 years later I am all for it um (laughs) um, what that gesture is about at the end I think is she's bowing out of her ambition not her ambition for life but she's bowing out of a drive that she had to be an A student, to be perfect and to be the one who's doing it right. I think she's learned that the world is way too messy for her to have a personal investment in being shiny and important and in control. And whatever that would yield for her in her journey as a person, maybe her journey as a judge, I couldn't say because I don't know, that would have to be in the mind of whomever was telling her story onward. But I would like to think that she would continue being a judge because she just should be. I don't know. She should be. She should continue being a judge. I feel like the judges would benefit from having someone with her mentality as, as part of the team. Agreed. Definitely agreed. And, you know, I just also have to take a second and shout out Alex Garland um, because the Anderson that he wrote was so thoughtful and sensitive and nuanced and empowered and powerful. Um, Not because she was trying to be dread or be like a man, but because she was exactly herself. And that journey of her finding herself and her true strength is like, what I love so much about that movie and what I felt like as an actor, it was so meaty to lean into that role. Um, And I hope, I mean, if we're going to talk about a sequel to dread, like we have to also whisper to the gods of the film universe that Alex Garland be part of that. (laughs) If he would want to, I would be rooting for that to be, how all of this comes together. But it, it really, that that film still to this day has so much momentum and such a big and dedicated fan base. It, it always blows my mind when that comes up and there's just so much fervor behind the push to make another one. 
I love that movie so much. God, nothing would be more exciting than getting to embody that again, do all that fun stuff again. All right, let's get into Why the Last Man, the very, very beginning of it. I would love to know about the casting process because I know I know it was a journey to actually make this show happen and get it off the ground. And then you have some of the cast who was attached as early as 2018, but the news broke about your casting in late 2020. So did the Why the Last Man casting process feel extremely different compared to other casting processes you've been through? I think everything about Why the Last Man has felt extremely different than anything I've ever been a part of. And that's for a lot of reasons. The biggest, the backdrop, of course, is COVID and the nature of a global pandemic and what it means, like what a casting process means during that, as well as what it means to actually film a show during that. But then the other really different part of this show is the way that it's being made and the people that are making it and the just sort of experience that was there to be had um, and the creative experience and the social experience and the all of it. So um, without a global pandemic, I probably wouldn't have been in Why the Last Man because um they were gearing up to film um, with a slightly different cast uh, in March of 2020 when it fell apart. And um, so the sort of the, the reason that I got to come on board um, was because that had happened. Um, and the casting process was interesting for it because it happened so quickly. And sometimes things like that do. Um, but this was something that came into my field. Um, and then a few weeks later, my whole life was kind of turning upside down as I was moving to Toronto to shoot this job. So it was, it, it also came at a time when I wasn't certain what the film industry looked like anymore. I didn't know if there would ever be more jobs. I, it, it came really out of nowhere. Um, and so I think there was a part of it there too, that was surprising because, um, I had doubts about whether I would be working at all again, ever. <laughs> and then, and then I was, and, and how, um, <laughs> so, um, did that answer your, did that answer your question? It did. It did. Oh, the other thing was that, um, I hadn't imagined that, uh, a screen test could be done on Zoom, but it can. So now we know. <laughs> I feel like uh, I'm very grateful for the way that the industry has learned to pivot and keep things going like this because uh, like the last year and a half and even still now for that matter, if I didn't have this quality entertainment in my life, I don't think I would be in a good place right now. So it is just greatly appreciated while the whole world feels like it's turned on its head that at least we all have uh, solid shows and movies to kind of take a step back and enjoy together. Absolutely. And now more than ever, I think, too, the importance of telling stories to ourselves to try to figure out what's going on and what we're supposed to be doing and who we're supposed to be being right now. It's like more important than ever. Absolutely. All right. So you go through that whirlwind casting process. You even said there was another cast that was going to go and shoot the show originally. And then on top of that, 
you're working with very popular source material. So with all that in mind, when you get the role and you start your work on it, how do you make the role your own? Where do you draw the line between the source material, the prep work that had been done before and what you want Hero to be? Um, well, it was actually pretty easy because I think that the version of Hero that Eliza Clark created was already um, very expanded upon um, compared to in the source material. So in the comic books, we uh, pretty much the first time we meet Hero or the second time we meet Hero, um, it's the first time post-event. She's already in the Amazons. And we never get the story of what happened to her to get her there. And um, in Why the Last Man, the TV show, um, pretty much the entire first season is spent exploring a journey that doesn't exist in the comics. So the foundation of who Hero is is absolutely laid in the comics, but the depth of her story arc exists independently of the comics. So uh, it was really fun to read the comics because they're amazing. And I loved getting a sense of what we were trying to capture and the scope of the world and the scope of the story while I was reading them. Um, and I also loved knowing that the story that I was going to get to tell was fleshed out and human in a way that goes beyond what the comics laid down. All right, getting into the beginnings of the show now, I got to ask you about the ambulance scene, and I feel like this is going to get convoluted because I have a million questions I want to ask about this, but maybe let's do, what, what do you find more challenging when filming a sequence like that? Is it the escalation and the blocking of a moment like the fight portion of it, or is it the portion of it that is pretty much you just sitting there by yourself on camera, no dialogue, processing what just happened and also what could happen next? Let's see. That's interesting. That was a, that's a, it's a hard scene to film because there is a really big physical component and there is a stunt that has to happen, um, which was like very well rehearsed. Um, and uh, like a sort of a stunt sequence, well rehearsed with amazing stunt coordinator and uh, stunt performers who were there sort of just to support us and, you know, be there if we needed them. And um, it's hard to film a scene that is emotionally demanding as well as technically demanding because a stunt uh, needs to be executed in a technical way so that it's captured properly on camera and most importantly, so that nobody gets hurt. Um, so com sort of combining that with the emotional stakes, it, it is, it's just, de it's demanding. So that's kind of the, one of the hardest parts of the scene for sure. In terms of the other parts of the scene, meaning like what happens the next day, because that's actually, was that it was actually filmed not only on a different day, but actually at a different location. Uh, it was, it's, that makes it challenging in its own way because you have to be connected to what you've already done. Um, 
you know what I'm realizing? I think we shot that first. So to really make things complicated, I think that we shot that scene that happens the next morning before we filmed um, the part of the scene that happens the night before. Um, so it's a lot of guesswork actually. And just, and just relying on sort of movie magic and to tell a story that an audience can follow. Um, so I don't know if I'm doing a good job of answering your question, but it, it's very dynamic. It's very much like there's an element of, well, how much blood would there be and where would it be? Um, because we haven't shot the thing yet where all the blood comes out. So that's some, that's some guesswork. Um, and, uh, you know, something about Hero that often would come in and save me is that I think she has a tendency to go really numb sometimes. And I think that that's sort of where she's at by the time we catch up with her the next morning and she's just been sitting in that ambulance all night in a pool of blood, knowing that her life as she knows it is over. Um, and that she's in a lot of trouble. Um, she's pretty numb. I think she's been through it. I think she's been through hell. So I was, uh, able to lean into that and knowing that there wasn't some insane expression of emotion that needed to be happening in that moment, because that wasn't, that wasn't the arc of where she was anymore. Oh yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good breakdown to have because I feel like anybody who doesn't know the ins and outs of what it takes to film a scene like that is basically like, oh, you get to do like a cool stunt, or you're just sitting there and you're just like emoting and not really doing anything. So to be able to paint the picture of how the schedule works and all the little intricacies that go along with it, it does shed a lot of light on what it takes to film a moment like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was three different days. Uh, because the stuff that happens in the ambulance that's sort of like sweet and intimate was actually, I think, on a, even a different day. All right. I'm jumping uh, far ahead now. I want to jump to, uh, I guess, episode four and beyond-ish. I guess it's kind of four and six mainly. Just please tell me everything about working with Missy Pyle, who I am time and time again convinced never gets the credit that she deserves for her work. Missy is absolutely brilliant in this role and she is a human person that I couldn't adore more. Um, working with her was such a joy. This is actually my second time working with Missy Pyle. Thank you very much. I feel like, like a notch on my belt. Um, <laughs> um, she's, uh, she's incredible. And I think that the relationship between Roxanne and Hero is very interesting and was very fun to explore. And she's just a wild card. Um, she's the way that she inhabited this role and the accent and everything that she did. She just, she just brought it off the page in a way that I think everybody, as we were watching it happen, we were sort of clutching ourselves with glee because it was just so, so rad to see, you know, see it all uh, come to life. Um, and th that's kind of how I feel about everyone who was involved in this. Um, I mean, Marin Ireland is one of the most prolific performers alive. 
and to have the opportunity to work with her and see that relationship between Roxanne and Nora unfolding was honestly, it was a gift. It was like a masterclass, um, just to watch it. And I, you know, I have to talk about Destiny Akariga who directed episode four and episode six. Working with her was also an experience that was deeply powerful and fulfilling and that I will treasure for the rest of my life. She's beyond brilliant. And her way of thinking and collaborating just set the bar to a new bar so high. Uh, she thinks so deeply about these characters and she's a really big fan of the source material too. So she cared so much coming in. Um, and, and the things that she told me about hero and the way that she thought about hero were things that I was able to keep and then went on to inform really who hero even became in the rest of the season. So wow. And just major wows. Speaking of things that inform the character, I'm I'm wondering what is going through your mind and what's informing her decision to tell Roxanne her big secret in episode six because, she, you know, she's got she's got Sam, like she has someone she knows and she trusts that she could have told that to, but in that particular moment, is is it mostly a matter of just needing to get it out or feeling truly like Roxanne is the right person to tell it to? I think. It's that, in a weird way, so what's just happened is that Hero has just seen how this is a place where people are free to become something different if they want to and sort of shed their skin like a snake and leave the past locked away um, and gone. And um, even though she's a bit conflicted and uh, I think dubious of everything that's going on at the price max, there is something so enticing to her about just having this thing be gone forever, this thing that she feels like she could probably never get away from. And um, telling Sam is impossible for her. She already tried. And um, I think she's deep down, she's just too afraid that he'll leave her, that he'll reject her, that he won't love her anymore once he knows the truth of who she is. And her opinion of herself is so low. And I think that Roxanne is someone who, um, she doesn't really care what Roxanne thinks about her. But she does know that Roxanne has the power to pronounce someone transformed. So it's sort of the perfect storm of the stakes being really low and also the prize being in sight. And I don't think that the sharing of this secret is premeditated at all. I think that um, 
it's weird for Hero to feel wanted. I think she, it feels for her at this moment in her life, it feels really good that she's in this group of people that seem to like her and be intrigued by her and want her in some way. And um, she, she sort of sees the apple and she picks it. Definitely comes across that way, but you just described it so beautifully. When you were talking about the Sam portion, I feel like I could feel myself tearing up and just going back to that earlier conversation they had when she tried to tell and the reaction was like, it basically put a hard stop on it and made it so clearly impossible. And that kind of broke my heart. It is. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's, um, I really think that if Hero had been able to tell Sam the truth, first of all, I think he would have accepted her and loved her anyway. No, of course, you know, we can see that as an audience. Um, but I think that the fact that she was never able to tell him the truth out of her own sort of fear and weakness about it, um, it drives a stake between them that um, is hard to recover from. And it's sort of the tragic, the tragic, some of the tragedy of their love, I think. Before I let you go, we have one more game to play. This next game is called Silver Screen Survival. We're going to roll with the idea of an apocalyptic type scenario, but I'm going to turn it, actually, no. Let's turn it into a slasher movie right now. I'm going to tell you a whole bunch of, like, I guess, slasher movie character superlative type things, and you tell me which Why the Last Man actor would best suit this description. Okay. First one is, who is the most likely not to realize that they're in a horror movie and to go and investigate a strange noise and run right into the killer. Diana Bang, Dr. Allison Mann, who you haven't met yet, but just wait, folks, because this woman is a force. As someone who's seen some of those episodes can confirm. Obsessed. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with Diana Bang and Dr. Man. All right, the next one here. Who is the most likely to sacrifice themselves for the rest of the group? Obviously, 355, Ashley Romans. But she'll do it really arrogantly, probably. <laughs> Not Ashley. Ashley is a joy of a human being, but 355, the character. Am I supposed to be answering with the character? I should just answer with the character. With the actor. I just I can't. I can't separate it because these people are like my family and I'm just so obsessed with them and I am so in love with all of their performances that I can't really talk about the character without talking about the actor too. <laughs> totally fair, totally fair. It's, it's the kind of situation where as a viewer, I can't see these roles now played by any other people in the world. It would not have been the same and it would not have been as good. Yay! That makes me happy. Thank you. I mean it. All right, the next one here. Who is the most likely to trip and fall while running from the killer? I feel like definitely also Dr. Mann. Diana Bang. 
She's also, she's like a comedy genius. She's just, she's amazing. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think, yeah. I'm going to stick with my answer. I would buy that one. All right. Here's, here's a little bit of a weird one. Who is the most likely to just give up at the start? Basically say, you know, like, F this. It's too scary. I'm leaving. Definitely Sam. My love, Elliot Fletcher. He's the one who'd be like, I've seen way too many horror movies for this. <laughs> I know what happens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> two more here. First is, who is the most likely to be the last one standing? Um, Kimberly, played by Amber Tamblin. Yeah. Or, or Nora, played by Marin Ireland. But I would like to see those two duke it out. That would be fun. I would enjoy that. I was about I was about to be like, I can't imagine why you would pick Kimberly, but no, like everything that I've seen her do, yes, that is probably one of the best answers you could have given. <laughs> Here's your last one here. Who is the most likely to be the one that you think is dead, but is actually alive and comes back to help save the day at the last possible second? The first answer that comes to my mind is Diane Lane. Jennifer Brown. I would believe it. Yeah, I think she's always she's always going to come through with like the righteous savior, but like in a good way. I think that totally makes sense. I think you crushed the game. Job well done. Woo! I mean, it's an easy game to play because there's no wrong answer. So thanks for <laughs> giving me an easy one. There I go. Thank you so much for hanging out with us on Ladies Night. Big congrats on Why the Last Man and on your entire filmography, which I seriously do love. Thank you again. Congratulations. And everybody out there, check out Why the Last Man on FX on Hulu right now. Thank you so much, Perry. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.